Welcome to Everything I Hate About Me. I am Eli, and today we're going to continue our conversation about wisdom and the courage that wisdom requires. But first, are you tired of trying to be funny at parties? Have you finally come to the realization that you are supremely uninteresting? Do you want to meet that special someone, but you don't want to have to use your words? Well then, try blonde hair dye. Why be someone with whom she would have an intellectual relationship with when you could be blonde? If we are to believe the teacher of Ecclesiastes, then with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The sorrow that wisdom brings requires courage from all of us. Being a fool is easy because cowardice is easy. It is simple. Wisdom is complex and oft requires more of us than we are willing to give, choosing instead the foolish ignorance that is required to continue believing the false narrative we have constructed for our individual lives and for the world in general. We all know of the courage to do the right thing, but what of the courage to do the wrong thing? We all know of the courage to never give up, to die a martyr. What of the courage to surrender? We all know of the courage to stay true to our beliefs. What of the courage to feel that God has spoken to us, that our prayers have been answered, and to later admit that we were wrong? Courage is no less simple than wisdom and often brings just as much sorrow as courage and wisdom are inseparably entangled. To demonstrate this, I would like to refer to the adventure classic Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. In the previous episode, I had mentioned reading Treasure Island to one of my babies as I attempted to teach her how to suckle. Unconsciously, I believe I had chosen to read Treasure Island to remind myself of the courage I had learned in my childhood that had prepared me for the adventure of parenthood. For the purpose of this episode, I will mostly be referring to the 1934 film version of Treasure Island, a film I had watched over and over again as a young boy. I wouldn't have been able to explain any of this in my youth, but it seems obvious now that I have become something of an amalgam of this film's versions of Jim Hawkins and Long John Silver. Each of these characters and their friendship, love, and courage have formed my personality as much or more than anything else in my life. It is tempting to oversimplify the characters of Hawkins and Silver, as most productions do, but we'll see if we can't make flesh and blood out of these classic stereotypes. I was speaking on the phone with my son Moses the other day, and he called me out on something about this podcast. He told me, Dad, you don't seem to be telling people what you hate about yourself. I told him I thought it was implied in what I was saying, 
but that it was perhaps another thing to hate about myself that I have not been specific enough in each episode to say why these are things I hate about me. So the specific reason for this episode is that I have constantly lacked the courage to be wise and the wisdom to have courage. I believe many adventure stories teach us these things, and Treasure Island is no exception. Child star Jackie Cooper was only 13 when he was miscast as Jim Hawkins. Cooper was known for his crying and pouting, and for his previously Oscar-nominated performance, also opposite Wallace Beery. There is no lack of pouting or crying in Cooper's performance in Treasure Island. When Cooper is not pouting, he is seemingly crying and vice versa. However, there is also a lot of nuance to Cooper's performance that is usually overlooked because of the pouting and crying. For Wallace Beery's part, as Long John Silver, he is accused of giving a performance that too often winks at the camera, but this too ignores the nuance of Beery's performance as he effortlessly shifts from immaculate sea cook to villainous murderer to capable captain to lovable rogue to kindly father figure, all while endowing the character of Silver with the dark humor of one of the world's greatest confidence men. Silver's enemies are often more impressed with his aptitude than his acolytes. A mark of greatness, to be sure, and he might be the most trusted pirate in all of literature. By the end of the film, Silver will have lost the love and respect of everyone except Hawkins and the audience. The mark of greatness in Beery's complex and affable portrayal. Even after Silver's countless crimes, lies, and murders, we, the audience, no more want to see him hang than Hawkins does. In my own faith tradition, I grew up learning a teaching said to be about Jesus, kind of a riddle of sorts in the form of a question. Shall mercy rob justice? Now it reminds me of the time I asked perhaps a similar riddle to my daughter, Rainbow, when she was preschool age. She was sitting on my knee and I asked her, Rainbow, what happens when the unstoppable force meets the immovable object. I was ready for her to respond that she did not know, and I would teach her something profound when I informed her of the answer. They surrender. Instead, Rainbow turned the tables on me completely as she responded after only a moment's hesitation, they kiss. A kiss, of course, is a form of surrender, but also a form of attack. A kiss can communicate a seemingly infinite number of things, from true love's kiss to Judas's kiss on the cheek of Jesus. Rainbow had taken my blunt and simplistic understanding of the riddle and replaced it with a nuance that I am still struggling to comprehend. The riddle of mercy robbing justice had an equally blunt and simplistic answer in my youth, 
No. Unequivocally, no. Mercy cannot rob justice. This was the balance I was taught, a binary that continues to plague Christianity. The problem with binaries is that they rarely exist in the universe. Our understanding of anything quantum-related has put a profound end to any sort of binary understanding of existence. I saw a sign in front of a Christian church recently that read, Where science ends, religion takes over. I felt almost bad for such a confused understanding of the relationship between religion and science because it is surely the opposite of what that sign was proclaiming. Religion rarely, if ever, has any curiosity for how God accomplishes anything, preferring not to solve any mysteries, but to allow God to remain the man behind the curtain. Meanwhile, science is busily expounding upon mystery after mystery, equally joyful to be wrong as to be right, for being wrong means continued exploration, expanding our understanding of everything. Religion far too often wallows in the mire of the answer, no matter how incorrect, while science is gayfully exploring the questions. One of the great strengths of religion is metaphor, but it is underutilized to a confusing degree. Why do I have to read Chaim Potok? a devout rabbi, to find someone who understands the complexity of the cross as he does in his masterpiece, My Name is Asher Lev. Christianity should own that metaphor like nobody's business, but I always have to return to a Jewish author for sincere meditation upon Christianity's strongest symbol. I don't want to spoil Asher Lev for those who haven't read it, so I'll give my own simplified variation on the metaphor of the cross, which is, in a word, altruism. The greatest thing the cross should be teaching the world is that sacrifice is not transactional. When the scripture says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it doesn't say God bartered his son or traded his son, or sold him at a price, God gave him. Just as the love I have for my children is not transactional, neither is the altruism which is the metaphor of the cross. Altruism means giving of ourselves in a way that is disadvantageous or even harmful to us, only benefiting the other. This is why the metaphor of the cross transcends Christianity to the point that the non-Christian can have more to say on the subject than the Christian. What do I now make of the little riddle of my childhood? Shall mercy rob justice? Now my answer is yes. Every time, yes. If said mercy is altruistic by nature, then yes, justice will be robbed in some fashion or another. Justice will have to give up something of itself, attacked by mercy, allowing kindly injustices to occur. This is the kiss of those who are at odds with each other. 
the complex communication of attack and surrender that is love. Long John Silver has murder on his mind. From his first introduction to Squire Trelawney as a kindly one-legged cook who affably tells Jim Hawkins that he is smart as paint, Silver has nothing on his mind but murder and treasure. Treasure and murder. Silver has no intention of making real friends with Jim. Jim is but a means to an end, to gain the confidence of the voyage's leadership, which he does with rousing success. Silver is so successful that Jim apologizes for ever giving credence to the warning he received earlier from Billy Bones to watch for a seafaring man with one leg, him above all. Long John is so successful a confidence man that the vast intellectual powers of the good Dr. Livesey are overwhelmed and completely blinded by the charisma of the one-legged pirate. Silver is so impressive that neither the other pirates nor we the audience question him at all when he claims that he is captain because he is the best man amongst them by a long mile. The schemes of our crippled pirate are only undone by sheer luck, as Jim Hawkins finds himself hidden in an apple barrel overhearing the plotting of the mutineers. Actors can often be heard talking about finding within themselves pieces of the characters they are portraying. There are heroes and villains within each of us, good intentions and bad intellect and naivete, sinfulness and virtue. Long John Silver's ability to tap into these different parts of himself as the situation requires is what makes him a top-notch thespian, instantly likable and extremely dangerous. This is the talent of the best con men, charismatically winning us over as they plot our destruction. Silver is one of the greatest con men of all time, perhaps even more talented than any of Shakespeare's creations, which is saying a lot as the bard had a true knack for the con artist. From Regan and Goneril betraying their father, King Lear, with words of devotion, to Mark Anthony's amazing speech in Julius Caesar, which feigns at excusing the conspirators, but ingeniously undermines them to Hamlet's complex plotting to expose and dispatch of his father's murderer, to Iago's warnings to Othello to not give in to the green-eyed monster of jealousy, whilst filling Othello with madness. The greatest of Shakespeare's conmen, though, must be Richard III, who, in scene two of his play, has the audacity to woo Lady Anne in the presence of her father-in-law's corpse who Richard had just recently murdered. And he succeeds. What grotesque humor must Richard possess to even attempt such a thing and to succeed? Richard truly puts the art in con artist. With such a compelling list, which we could continue to add many other names to, why would I claim that Long John Silver surpasses them? 
Shakespeare's con artists, at least those who demonstrate true artistry, all meet their deaths. Even Mark Antony, who survives Julius Caesar, eventually comes to a bad end in Antony and Cleopatra. Silver, on the other hand, wins his freedom, even being granted well wishes from Jim, who, by this time, has seen Silver for who he is, a gentleman of fortune, loyal only to himself. In the book, it is Ben Gunn who allows Silver to leave, with no fond goodbye to Jim, as is usually portrayed in the movies. Ben does so, claiming he has saved all of their lives by getting Silver off the ship. At this time, Silver has reintegrated himself into the crew, working and acting freely once again aboard the Hispaniola. After all of the mutiny and murder, the double and triple crosses, Silver has reintegrated himself amongst the loyal crew. If that's not con artistry, then I don't know what is. In the 1934 film, it is Jim who can't stand the thought of Silver hanging for his crimes and lets him loose from the brig. Jim even has to help the murdering sea cook up as he is so weighed down with the gold he has stole and hidden on his person. Long John then bludgeons Ben Gunn with a blow that quite literally could have killed him and has one last opportunity to portray himself as the sinful saint when a bag of gold falls from its hiding place in his shirt and he tells Jim that he's glad that happened so he wouldn't have that stolen money on his conscience. Not mentioning all the other bags of stolen loot still hidden in his clothes. In a famous scene that gives Jackie Cooper one last chance to cry for the camera, Long John waves goodbye to Jim as he rows away with empty promises that they will see each other again. Surely we will, says Long John. Surely we will, parrots Jim through his tears. Does Jim really believe it? Or is he well aware that the pirate he had once looked to as a father figure will never be seen again? If this had been a modern movie with this ending, we could be rest assured that there would be a sequel. They had left lots of silver bars on the island when they sailed away. Surely in the 2020s we would have Treasure Island 2. Long John Silver's Silver. Thank heavens this movie was made in the 1930s. In the book, Jim ends his account by sharing with us his PTSD, that he is still haunted by Silver's bird, Captain Flint squawking, Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Is Jim being courageous or a coward in the movie when he betrays the law and his loyal crewmates by aiding in Long John's escape? Surely his mercy is robbing justice. In fact, Treasure Island is full of examples of mercy robbing justice, especially in the book. As the victorious crew aboard the Hispaniola prepares to leave the island, marooning three of the mutineers, the crew not only leaves them generous provisions, but the good doctor gives them a present of a large amount of tobacco to fill their pipes with. 
Justice would have the pirates with nothing but to suffer and die, an eye for an eye, with no hope or comfort, no sharing of provisions or gifts. Jim even reflects that marooning their would-be murderers is its own mercy, as it's a gallows fate for all who return with them. Jim undoubtedly seems wiser by the story's end, and that wisdom leads him to break away from many absolutist ideas of right and wrong. Try to imagine Yahweh, the god of the Old Testament, wishing a murdering pirate well, setting him free, and waving a tender goodbye. I have some reservations that the God of Israel who set his people on fire and attacked them with poisonous snakes just for complaining about dinner would ever do such a thing. The love we share with Jim for the pirate with a tender heart is a complete rejection of the law of Moses and, in turn, the Old Testament God Our fascination with pirates that continues in our popular culture is a rejection of justice. I dare say that none of us wants to see Long John hang for his crimes. We join Jim in wishing him well. No doubt some of us might say to Long John, Go thy way and sin no more. The rest of us love Long John Silver just the way he is and wouldn't change this keenest of con men for all of the gold on Treasure Island.